Hey everyone, um, quick note before we start the episode here. Um, I just want to say that I went back and listened to my old intros because usually, you know, I just have it saved off my intro, my outro. I just stick them around my episode and then I publish. When I went back and listened to my intro, I don't love it. I don't even love my outro. So I'm just going to skip that for today. This is the intro for today. Make sure to go and give a five-star review on iTunes or Apple music and, um, leave a review, follow me on Instagram, add a millennial learns, all of that good stuff. The other note I wanted to say about this episode is that they talk, I talk a lot about the Philistines in this and I kept saying Philistinians for a while because I think I was getting Palestinians and Philistines like mixed up in my mind. And so, um, it's Philistines. Every time I say Philistinians, just know that I mean Philistines. So I think I catch it like halfway through the episode or maybe towards the end. But um, yeah, that is a mistake that I have made. Also, um, I'm, I started a YouTube channel, which is essentially a shortened podcast. It's like 10 minutes long of me just talking um, about a topic pretty much every day. Um, so go follow me that it's at Abby Rancor, or I don't even know if YouTube is an at just search my YouTube channel, Abby Rancor, go subscribe to me over there as well. If you want to hear more, just random topics for a few minutes a day. So let's get into the episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is a millennial learns with your host, me, Abby Rancor. Thank you so much for listening and joining me today for our Bible episode. Um, so today we are going through judges 19 through first Samuel 19. And I was like, Oh, that seems like kind of a short one, just like the end part of one book into 19 chapters of another book. We also go through Ruth, which I didn't really realize that Ruth was kind of sandwiched in between Judges and First Samuel. Um, now, Ruth is one of the shortest books of the Bible. I think it's only four chapters and it's a little short kind of synopsis. So it doesn't actually take that long, but the reading this week felt very long. And I think that's just because Samuel, each um, chapter is pretty lengthy. In fact, the intro said that um, Samuel is actually just one really long book. That's how it meant to be it was meant to be written, but they had um, like size constraints just based off of the scrolls that they were written on, which is why there are two books of Samuel, just because they were written on different scrolls. Um, so it was a really good section this week. There's a lot of great stories in this. This is where it kind of gets into the smaller stories. Like Ruth is like a mini story in itself that lasts four chapters. There's David and Goliath in here. There's a lot of stories that I didn't know about the time of judges and, um, in Samuel before David and Goliath. So I thought this week was actually a very interesting read. I liked it, but again, it felt long. So if you followed along, I'm curious if that was just me and there were some hard parts to get through, or if that was, it's just long. So um, let's get right in with Judges 19. Okay, so in Judges 19, we are in obviously still the time of Judges when if you uh, did not listen last week, basically the time of Judges is when Israel has no formal king. There are just these judges that kind of rise up that God selects that lead Israel throughout, but it's not like a it's not a specified elected king, if you will, like all the other nations had. So in Judges 19, Israel still, do, still does not have a king. They just have judges. Um, so the story in this one is kind of 
disturbing actually there was a levite who lived in a remote area and he took a concubine from bethlehem now this is a side note but you'll notice that a lot of things happen in bethlehem and i'm wondering if that is like a tie to jesus and what um you know jesus was born in bethlehem so i'm wondering if that was like something relevant there where a lot of important things came from bethlehem i'm not really sure but anyway, this Levite was took a concubine from Bethlehem, which is in the area of the tribe of Judah. So the concubine was then unfaithful, and so she left once she was found out and went back to her parents' house. But months later, the husband came and tried to persuade her to come back. And he stayed three days with the family, as it seemed like it was custom. If you go into a town, someone would take you in. He stayed with her family. And they kept saying, refresh yourself, stay, stay another night, refresh yourself, stay another night, like as he was about to leave. Um, and he ended up leaving on the sixth day instead of the normal three days that he was going to. So he, once he left, he went to Gibeah with the concubine and he went to Gibeah, which was further because there were Israelites there. Like they were going to stay at this one town that was a little bit closer, but he decided to push onward and stay at Gibeah because you know, he figured it'd be better since it's his own people. They were Israelites. So this is where the custom comes in of someone like taking them in. Basically, what it sounds like they would do is go to the town square, like the little central area of the town, and someone would come take you in. Well, no one came and took them in that day, except for one old man offered, I think as it was like getting dark, Um, an old man from Ephraim who lived there, took them in. And then it said that there were a bunch of wicked men in the city and they surrounded the house and said, bring the man who came to your house, um, so we can have sex with him. It's like the same exact thing as Sodom and Gomorrah. They wanted to have sex with the man. So they were demanding this of the old man that took in the couple. So they said, Hey, old man, bring out the the man that you just took in and we'll have sex with him. Well, he said, no, I'm not going to do that, but here's a concubine that's in the house. So they put her out of the house. They basically raped her and abused her all night and she died. She like fell down at the door until daylight. And when they came out, she was unresponsive and dead. So he, the, the husband packed everything up and took her cut her up into 12 parts and sent them out each part to an area of Israel. And I was shocked by this. I was like, what is the point of that? That seems super barbaric, but it is shortly answered in the next chapter, which is judges 20. So, um, once all of these pieces of the concubine got to the different tribes of Israel, they all came together as one and assembled before the Lord at Mitzvah, which was like their central meeting place. And they said, tell us how this awful thing happened. And basically it was, it became clear in this chapter that she was cut up and sent to the tribes of Israel to show proof against how terrible and how outrageous this act was. And it happened in Israel by Israelites. So it was basically a sign to everyone to say assemble against Dibia for doing this because Dibia is a city in the tribe in the, in the area of Benjamin of the tribe of Benjamin. And so 
they needed to get rid of this evil within the Israelites. So they all, it was a signal to assemble basically. Um, so they started assembling the army and they said that 10% of the men would go fight against Gibeah in Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin would not listen to turn Gibeah over to Israel because um, they just basically turned a blind eye to what had happened. Um, so Benjamin assembled against Israelites and they had 26,000 soldiers with 700 left-handed people. And if you remember last Bible episode, we talked about it, the Bible mentioning that there were, like, someone was left-handed. And I thought that was very odd. But then I realized that it's kind of like a more tricky thing. It's a good thing to have a lot of left-handed people in your army because they obviously fight different. It could be a surprise um, that they're fighting with their left hand instead of their right. And everyone was expecting right-handed ones. So it could be an advantage to have a lot of left-handed people in your army. So Gibeah had 26,000 soldiers and 700 left-handed soldiers. And Israel had... 400,000 swordsmen. So Judah is picked first. So they're going to go by tribe. They're going to go fight by tribe. And the Lord says to send Judah first. So 22,000 Israelites died and they come back and they're sad and they're confused because they died. And they asked the Lord, should we go up and fight them again? And the Lord says, yes. Well, the next day, another 18,000 died. And again, they fasted and they asked God and he says to go again and tomorrow I will give them into your hands. And he basically showed them this ambush to do that would draw the Benjamites out of their city. And then they, they've done this ambush a couple times, at least I think. Um, I'm not sure if, sure if the directions were exactly the same as the last ambush I read about, but basically they set up like three different camps and a few of them drew the army away from the city. And then there was an ambush on the other side of the city that ran and burned it down, burned it down. So the Israelites, um, they defeated or the, the Jew or yeah, the tribe of Judah defeated the Benjamites and 25 swordsmen died. Um, Israelites went back and destroyed all the cities. Um, and, I'm not sure if this is a correct interpretation of this necessarily, but what this story really reminded me of is bringing things to light and cutting things out of your life that are bad because multiple times God has told the Israelites to rid, to like basically cleanse the Israelites of evil. Like if there's evil among them to get rid of it. So like if someone is trying to make someone turn to false gods, they usually get stoned or have the death penalty. This reminds me of that. And like, I actually had this thought, I was writing this before, like bringing things to light. So if something bad like this happens, um, it's kind of symbolic of, you know, bringing out the sin that you have to light and then cutting it out. Obviously, this is a very literal story where something actually terrible happened and then they went and essentially retaliated. But um, there's a big theme coursing through like all of these first books about obeying God's commandments and sticking to the covenant and cutting out anything that is bad or dark within the Israelites. Um, so, and then it was funny because then I went to Bible study a couple days later and the pastor had been talking about bringing things to light the entire week and I've been reading about that. So I thought that was interesting that it was, that's what I learned right before Bible study. We talked about that in Bible study. Um, 
Okay, so then we move on to Judges 21. It said the men of Israel took an oath that they wouldn't give their daughter in marriage to any Benjamite. They all wept for the tribe of Israel because even though they had to defeat them, it is a tribe of Israel. They are one people. And so they are, you know, very sad that they had to do that. They gave burnt offerings. And then they said, who has failed to assemble? Because basically they, they say, you know, how are the Benjamites going to survive? Because, um, they're survivors from that tribe after the battle and you know none of the israelite tribes can now give them any wives so how are they gonna you know pass on on their families and stuff and so they said they figured out that no one from the tribe of or no one from jabesh gilead had come to the camp to assemble and so they said okay well they're they're gonna get together an assembly of 12 thousand or sorry the assembly the entire assembly sent out 12,000 men to go kill the people of Jadesh Gilead because it's also a commandment that you have to assemble they were supposed to be there basically but they said go kill everyone except for the virgins so they went and did that there were 400 women that they spared um, but there's too many Benjamite men there were too few women. So they, he instructed the Benjamites to go hide in the vineyards north of Israel. And when young women of the Shiloh come out to dance and to go basically rush out and seize one of them to be your wife, that's how they solved that problem, which seems a bit sketchy. I think, you know, it was like the wild west out there. It was, it was crazy, but that is, uh, yeah, that's one way to get a wife, I guess. Um, but basically they were, their solution to this was to go seize, uh, women from other areas and just make them be the Benjamites wife since there weren't enough women in the region that didn't come to meet. Um, okay. So it reiterated here again, that there was no King and every tribe did as they saw fit. Um, okay, so that was it for Judges. That was the whole part of Judges. So we're kind of at the end of the era where um, there are just Judges because as we'll see kind of in the next section here after Ruth, this is when King they start demanding that they want to have a king and we follow kings of Israel instead of just Judges. So that is the end of the era with Judges. I thought that was a very interesting book. And I really, I don't even know if I've really read, sat down and read Judges in so long. I didn't remember so much of that. So it was a great read. Uh, okay, so then we start into Ruth. And in Ruth 1, this is still in the days where Judges ruled, it says. But there was a famine in the land. Again, there's a man from Bethlehem uh, in Judah. So we're, we're following this man named Elimelech and he's from Bethlehem in Judah. And he went to live in Moab with his wife, Naomi. They had two sons named Malon and Kilian. And, um, eventually Elimelech died and his, uh, their sons married Moabites since they were living in Moab. And, uh, their two sons, Malon, uh, married Orpah and Killian married a woman named Ruth, and that's obviously who the book is named after. 
So over the course of 10 years, they were living in Moab, but eventually both sons died. This is, so 10 years later, both sons are dead. It's just Naomi, who is Elimelech's wife, and the, her two daughter-in-laws, who are Orpah and Ruth. So Naomi, Naomi heard, finally, that there was now food in Judah. So she wanted to return to, back to um, her home and set out for the trip. But at, after she set out for the trip, like as they were on their way, it sounded like they were still pretty close to the, you know, to Moab. But Naomi said, go back, go back to your people, go out, back to Moab, um, because you shouldn't be making this whole trek for, you know, for my people, basically. They didn't want to go. They were weeping, all this stuff. But eventually Orpah did decide to, to go back to Moab and basically start a new life there. But Ruth did not want to go back and she wanted to stay with Naomi. And this is where the famous uh, quote of like, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. Your gods will be, or your God will be my God. That's where this quote happens in Ruth 1. And Naomi and Ruth continue on for their journey. They get to Judah um, to return for food. Everyone is like in a frenzy that she's back. Like, is this Naomi? I thought you were in Moab, all of this. And Naomi came back and said, please like call me Mara because that means the Almighty has made my life very bitter. She, she said she left full with a full cup and she comes back empty because both of her sons have died and her husband. So that is really tough for Naomi. She's lived a really hard life up to this point because of all these deaths, but Ruth is really sticking by her. So in Ruth 2, Naomi's relative um, on her husband's side was named Boaz. Now, Ruth needed to provide food for them, needed to go out and basically collect food because these women worked in the fields. If you remember a couple books ago, I don't exactly remember what the reference was, but um, part of the commands that God had told the Israelites a while back with their fields was to just do a pass one time when you're harvesting your fields, but then leave the, you know, whatever falls on the ground, just leave it for the poor and don't go back through and like, try to harvest it again, just leave it for, for the poor and the needy. And so Ruth basically ended up going to this field and she started picking up behind the women. And without knowing it, the field that she was in to pick up this food was actually Moab's field. So, and she didn't know, and she didn't even know that she had a relative named Boaz yet anyway. Um, but she found favor in the eyes of Boaz and he told her that um, all the workers and the women to not lay a hand on her and to drink from their water jars and gave her a lot of like, he treated her very, very well. And she said, why have I found such favor? And essentially word had gotten around that what Ruth had done where she had stuck with Naomi. She was a woman of good character and she had done so much for her mother-in-law that she came to a whole other place, left her people in order to stay loyal to her mother-in-law. And, you know, the whole town had heard of this, heard that she was of noble character. And that's why Boaz, who had also heard, found favor because he knew that that was Ruth who had done all of this. So it kind of got repaid back to her because she had 
a good reputation and had stuck by and been loyal. Um, so after gathering the whole, uh, you know, all the stuff in the field, all the grain that she could, she had a good meal with the harvesters, which sounds like didn't usually happen. Um, and she got a ton of food in the field. So she gets back to Naomi. Naomi is amazed by how much she got. And she said, where did you glean? Where did you glean all this food? And she told her, she, uh, Ruth told Naomi that it was Boaz. And Naomi recognized, oh, Boab is actually our close relative. He is our guardian redeemer. And I looked up guardian redeemers, which I think I looked up um, in the beginning because one of the laws talked about redeemers and stuff. But basically family members, close family members, if someone falls on hard times, they have an obligation to help them. So let's say Boaz is really rich and Ruth and Naomi are very, uh, I almost said small, are very poor. Um, they have an obligation to help them to redeem or help out a family member who is facing tough times or is poor. So that is what Boaz did. Okay, so in Ruth 3, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to go uncover Boaz's feet in the night and lie down and said, basically, he'll tell you what to do. But basically, this is the whole way to ask um, for guardian redeemership. So he woke up in the middle of the night with his feet uncovered and a woman was sitting at his bed said, okay, she said, hi, I'm Ruth. Um, I'm the one who gleans your field and basically said, you are our guardian redeemer. Can you redeem us? He said, yes, I will, but you actually have a closer relative that is eligible to redeem you. So, um, we'll ask him if he wants to redeem you because he is younger and, you know, he, she also found favor in Boaz's eyes because she wasn't going for someone who was just young, you know, she was going after like character and stuff. So he said, yes, um, I will redeem you if he doesn't want to, or if he's unable to. And that just means buying, like, for example, there was land that the widow or that, um, her husband had that when he died, they had land. I don't think women could be property owners. So a man would redeem the land by buying it. Um, okay. So they agreed that they would go investigate this other guardian redeemer that may or may not be eligible to redeem her. And he sent back six measures of barley with her to Naomi. Okay. So in Ruth four, it shows Boaz talking to the other possible redeemer with a bunch of elders in town. And they said, basically you get Ruth as well because we want to main, they wanted to maintain the name of the dead on the land. Cause part of this whole deal was redeeming land. And, but part of that was the land had to be tied to the name of the son that died. So Ruth's husband who had died, um, they wanted his name to be carried on through the generations. And so part of the redeeming deal is that, um, Ruth gets the, you know, it, Ruth will be the wife of whoever is her redeemer. Um, so the other guy said that he could not redeem because it may endanger his estate. And I think that's because the, of the name thing, like this, he wanted his estate, um, in his name. And so Boaz is willing to buy it and marries Ruth. Ruth ended up having a son. Naomi cared 
for it a lot and named him Obed. And then it talks about the lineal, uh, lineology, lineage, whatever. It talks about the line of David. So, um, that kind of tells us we're going to be talking about King David in the next section, which is first Samuel. Now, first Samuel is a very interesting book because again, it's very long and it was, it is just one book technically split up into two because of the scrolls. Um, but this is where it talks about Kings. And I, I knew Israel had Kings and I was confused why they didn't have Kings earlier. So this is the transition from judges to Kings, which I thought was pretty, pretty interesting. So in first Samuel one, there was a man named Elkanah from Ephraim. Okay. So (laughs) pronunciations are already kind of weak. Um, but basically he was faithful in praising and sacrificing every single year. Him and his wife would go to the, um, the place where everyone meets, you know, where the altar is and where the priests are to sacrifice and worship every year. They were very faithful in that. He had multiple wives, but one of his wives was Hannah, and he always gave her a double portion of the sacrifice because um, he loved her the most, and her womb, it said her womb was closed. Basically, she could not have a child. She was barren. Um, And she had a rival, it says. Now, it was never specific about who exactly the rival was, but apparently she had a rival that provoked her and tried to irritate her, talking about how she didn't have a son. Which reminds me of, I mean, I guess no one really makes, I shouldn't say no one, but maybe that's not a common thing now to like make fun of someone for not having a kid, a kid, but women today can just be kind of mean and it shows that women back then sometimes can be very mean too, because yeah, the rival tried to provoke her and irritate her and said that, you know, she didn't have a son and was making fun of her for that. So Hannah went to the the altar to the temple and started crying out to God and bargaining with him basically and said, if you give me a son, I will give him to the Lord for the rest of his days. So she was so desperate to have a son that she was willing to devote him to the Lord his whole life. And what that means is that he wouldn't come home with them. He would stay and serve God in the temple his entire life. Um, so she was so willing to have a son that she was willing to have him and then just leave him at the temple. Um, but when she was crying out, basically her, she was so desperate, her eyes were closed, her mouth was moving. She was basically crying out for so long. She was really tired and there was, you know, she was just mouthing the words at this point. And the priest, Eli, thought that she was drunk and she said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just in great distress. And she told Eli all about the problems and he said, may God grant what you have asked. So... As soon as she heard that and she left, she was no longer downcast, which I thought was a good point. And I'm not sure if I've heard this in a sermon or not before, but something that caught my attention was that as soon as Eli said, may God grant what you have asked, as soon as he said that, and as soon as she got that blessing spoken over her, it said that she was no longer downcast. But she was no longer downcast even before that blessing or that prayer was even fulfilled. She wasn't pregnant yet. 
and she didn't even know still if she could be pregnant. It sounded like they had been trying to get pregnant for a very long time, and she was not. But as soon as a blessing was spoken over her, she was no longer downcast immediately because she had the faith that that was true, that she would be blessed by God. And so she didn't wait for the circumstances of her life to change before she was no longer downcast. She chose to have complete faith that that was true and was immediately you know, perked up because she, she knew it was true. So shortly after that, it said with, with time, she ended up getting pregnant and giving birth to Samuel. So Hannah, um, since she had made that oath to devote him to the Lord said, well, let me, uh, wean him. And then after he's weaned, I will present him to God. So, um, you know, months later she had weaned him and brought him to the temple and the whole life his whole life he will be dedicated and it'll be given to the Lord. Which is an impressive uh, thing to follow through with, honestly. That would be tough. Uh, in the first part of 1 Samuel 2 is Hannah's prayer. There were a few quotes that I really liked. It says, um, the Lord brings death and makes alive. Uh, he you know, talks about the grave, like making people die and ri- rise up about poverty and wealth, humbles and exalts. Basically, the point is to praise him no matter what is happening in your life. Um, and then he also said, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And I think that's just in general true. Like, you can't go against the Lord of the universe. Um, that's probably not going to turn out, out that well. But it's a whole song of praise for, for this. And Hannah was praising God. Okay, then the next section comes in in 1 Samuel 2, and basically it says Eli was very faithful. Eli, Eli was the priest who had blessed Hannah, but his sons were scoundrels and had no regard for the Lord. And there was a, a situation where, I think it gets a little complicated, but essentially there's a way to handle the priest offerings, which includes a servant like uh, shoving a three prong fork in a pot with the meat offering and whatever would come up on the fork would be for priests. Um, but anyway, you're supposed to boil it and all this stuff, you know, there's a lot of rules with the sacrifices, but these two sons of Eli's had no regard for the sacrifices for the offerings. And the Lord was mad that the young men were treating the offerings with contempt and they were not treating the offerings correctly. So again, Samuel is now at the, uh, like the tabernacle, the, the priesthood year round, but every single year when Hannah and Elimelech bring, wait, is it Elimelech? Where that was that. Um, no, Elkanah, sorry, Elimelech was from the other story. So Elkanah and Hannah, every single time they went for their yearly sacrifice and worship, this is also where they bring their tithe. Um, she, Hannah always brought Samuel a new robe and right after Samuel was born, he, she actually had three sons and two daughters after that. So her womb was no longer closed. Um, Eli had heard about what his sons were doing. They were, they were sleeping with women at the tent entrance and they were treating the offering badly and all of that. And basically then it said it was the Lord's will to put them to death, which I was confused by until I really was thinking about it later that night. 
because I was like, is it the Lord's will to put someone to death? I don't, it doesn't seem like it would be. But then I realized it's complicated because it, I think it is his will to put them to death, but only because they chose to, to do that. If that makes sense, like they chose to, they knew a lot of the, they knew all the rules. They knew how to treat the offerings. They knew what to do and they chose to rebel against God. And so they essentially chose their own death and God's will to put them to death was the justice that was being served because they did not repent. So, um, there was a prophecy then that everyone would die in the prime of their life because this was, this, uh, group of people was full of sin, um, and both sons would die the same day. But there was also a prophecy that they would raise up a faithful priest. Okay, so in 1 Samuel 3, uh, the word of the Lord, it said, was rare in this time, which shows a little bit about, you know, there are seasons of a lot of prophecy or a little prophecy or times when God is talking to us more or less than other times. And so 1 Samuel 3 said it was the word of the Lord was rare in this time. The Lord called uh, Samuel audibly and Samuel, because he was living with Eli in the, you know, in the temple said, Samuel thought that Eli was calling. So three times Samuel gets up and says, yes, Eli, like you called. And Eli said, I didn't call you go back to bed. Eventually Eli recognized that it must be the Lord calling Samuel. So he said, you know, next time he calls you just say, here I am, Lord, I, you know, speak to me. Um, and so Eli, I mean, so, so the Lord talked to Samuel and said that Eli's family line was going to be punished because he knew the sin of his sons and Eli failed to restrain them. He, he failed to stop his sons from sinning. So after that, uh, Eli knew obviously that the Lord had been speaking to Samuel. He told him to tell him everything, but the prophecy and the vision that he had, that the Lord had showed Samuel was that Eli's line was going to be punished. And I'm always kind of amazed at how well they handle punishment. Like Moses, um, well, Moses complained about it a few times, but he still handled it pretty gracefully when he couldn't ever step foot in the promised land that he led the Israelites to, um, because that was a punishment for sinning. And then Eli really put up no fight in his thing. He just said, well, if that's what the Lord has, then that's what's going to happen. He did not fight the punishment. Okay. In first Samuel four, the Philistines capture the ark, which was an absolute mess. Okay. So the Israelites are fighting the Palestinians or wait, what? No, the Israelites are fighting the Philistines and 4,000 Israelites died. So they said, Hey, I have a great idea. Let's bring the ark to help us win. Well, the Philistines freaked out when the ark was brought in because they said, well, this is the ark. This is the God that helped them out of Israel or out of Egypt. And that day, Israel lost 30,000 soldiers. Benjamin fled, and he was very nervous about the ark, you know, being captured. He was nervous that the ark was in the, with the Philistines. And Eli was watching this fight happen from afar. He was sitting on a, on a chair. Benjamin ran back to Eli and said that, hey, both of your sons are died, have died in this battle, and the ark has been captured by the Philistines. And Eli immediately fell off of his chair and broke his neck. They said he was weak, like his neck was weak and stuff, but he was a big man. And so he broke his neck and he died. Eli's daughter-in-law then 
also who was very, very pregnant about to have give birth heard that, you know, her husband was dead, that Eli was dead and the Ark had been captured. And it was so much for her that she went into labor. She ended up dying during childbirth and had a son named Ichabod who was basically born right as she died. And the, the midwife named the baby, the glory has departed from Israel, which is what Ichabod means. So is a very, this is a very dramatic chapter. There was a lot that happened, but the prophecy came true because Eli is supposed to be the example of sinlessness of, you know, he's the priesthood. So if he sins, he's supposed to, you know, know all the sacrifices and stuff when his family line is corrupted and there's, you know, all this corruption and, and sin taking place, uh, there's punishment that comes on his family line. So we see that with Eli, both of his sons died and his daughter-in-law was pregnant, but they do get a son that was born. Okay. In first Samuel five, the Philistinians took the Ark into one of their idols, temples named Dagon or Dagon. I'm going to call it Dagon. <laughs> So Dagon um, keeps falling off the stand. So they bring the ark into this temple with the idol, and that idol keeps falling off night after night um, from the stand that he's on. And the head and the hands break off of the idol onto this threshold in the temple. And so the priests and anyone going into that temple would never step on the threshold because of that, because that's where it landed. And it said the Lord's hand was heavy on the people there. They, there were tumors that started appearing in all the people. They had a bunch of tumors. And so they said, let's get, I mean, let's get this out of here. Let's move the ark to Gath. And so then all the people in Gath started having uh, tumors. Then they moved it to a city called Ekron or Ekron and they got tumors. And they said, you know what? Let's just let it go back to its place in Israel. We don't want this ark. So they hooked it up to, they sent back a gold offering. They basically made tumors out of gold, which I thought was weird. And then rats out of gold, basically one tumor and a rat for each lead that represented each leader of the Philist, uh, Philistinians. They sent back the ark on a, you know, a, a cart hooked up with two cows as a guilt offering so they could use the cows as a guilt offering. They hooked up the ark, the golden tumors and rats and hooked it up to a cart with two cows. It said, if these two cows walk straight back to Beth, the city of Beth, um, we'll know that it's the Lord that it's because of this God that we've been struck down. If they wander off in some other location, like a path, will know that these tumors and things are just random. But the horses went straight back to Beth, which means that it was because of the the Lord of Israel, that the God of Israel, that they were getting these plagues. And the people in Beth were harvesting their crops and saw that the ark had come back on a cart with, with cows. So they started celebrating, they sacrificed the cows, 70 people died uh, in Beth because they tried to look inside the ark and no one can come face to face with God. And so they died and then they were, Beth was mourning because of that loss. Um, but then the people of Beth sent a message to Kiriath Jerim, which is like another city uh, in, of the Israelites. And they told them to come get the ark. 
So in 1 Samuel 7, the men of that city come and look at the ark. A man named Eleazar was to guard the ark, and he, and the ark stayed there for 20 years. So it was a nice long run, you know, with the ark there. Um, okay, so then Samuel instructed the Israelites to get rid of any foreign gods, and uh, they did. They were wholeheartedly on board. They got rid of other gods and they said, well, if you are wholeheartedly devoted to God, I will deliver you. God will deliver us from the, from the Philistines, from the Philistines. I think it's Philistines. Um, anyways. Okay. So then they assembled again at Mitzvah. The Philistine Philistines attacked and Samuel interceded on their behalf to God. God then caused a loud thunder and panic and the Israelites slaughtered the Philistines. Oh, Philistines sounds way more correct. Philistines. Okay, not Philistinians. Well, either sounds kind of okay, but I'll say Philistines from now on. Okay, so it said that God's hand was against the Philistines during all through Samuel's lifetime. So um, they experienced a lot of heartache uh, with that because they got slaughtered that thunder and panic, you know, is very clear that God was on the Israelite side for this. Then it said every town from Ekron to Gath, which if you um, remember was all the places that the ark was moved through. Um, Those used to be Israel's land, but they were taken by the Philistines. And so now that land was then restored to Israel and they had peace in the land. Um, and again, there were judges throughout, this was the judge throughout Israel, Samuel was. Okay, First Samuel 8, when, when Samuel was old, he appointed his sons to lead, Joel and Abijah. But his sons started accepting bribes, so I don't know what it is about these, you know, these corrupt leaders, but his sons started accepting bribes. And the elders came and told him to, told Samuel to appoint a king. They said, we're done with these judges. We want a king like everyone else has. And the Lord told Samuel, like, hey, they're rejecting me, not you. But you know what? Go ahead and appoint them king. But warn them what he'll want to claim as their rights. Which the Lord warned that the king will want to take the sons and make them serve him with chariots and horses. They'll run in front of the chariots and that their daughters will be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Basically, this king is going to claim all of the people as his right. He's going to take a tenth of everything from you and you're going to cry out from relief or for relief, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. And they didn't care. Um, you know, they said, no, we... We just want a king, basically. Um, so, First Samuel 9, there's this man, uh, Kish. He was a Benjamite. And he had a son, Saul, who was very handsome and tall, a tall man. And Saul went to find his father's lost donkeys because he had lost a few donkeys and he took uh, himself and one of his servants to go find the donkeys. They couldn't find him. They wanted to turn back, but eventually the servant said, well, let's talk to this wise man in this town up here. Now, the wise man is Samuel, uh, we find out later. 
But basically, they're going to take the last of their money, which is just a quarter shekel of silver, and go and ask Samuel, because he was rumored to be extremely wise in the land. They could tell him, you know, where the donkeys were or, or whatever. So as they entered the town, Samuel was there. And then the Bible says that Samuel, the day before, had been talking to God about who to appoint as this king. And the Lord had told him that he'll find a man um, you know, in the town that had just arrived in the town and it exactly matched the description of, of Saul. So when Saul started walking up, uh, Samuel immediately knew that this was going to be the king. And so Samuel kind of lets him in on it. The, he tells the servant to go, um, well, so actually, so he invited Samuel to dine with Saul Um, And then when they were going to head out the next day, he sent the servant ahead and said, here, hang back, Saul, because I want to give you a message from God. So in 1 Samuel 10, Samuel Samuel anointed Saul and appointed him king. He told him all about his upcoming journey. So Saul was still going to go home, uh, you know, back to his hometown, but he basically prophesied uh, about Saul's upcoming journey. He said, wait at this specific spot seven days until I come to meet you. Saul's heart suddenly changed. And when he was at this certain spot, basically everything in the, in the journey came true. Um, he started prophesying at this one spot on the journey and Samuel summoned everyone together and chose the King officially in this chapter. Um, and Samuel then explained all the rights and duties of the king and dismissed everyone. So this is where the king was appointed. God ch- helped choose the king, which was Saul. However, the Lord basically said, this is a bad idea. And Samuel knows this is a bad idea. But you know what? And this was frustrating to read because it's very clear that this is bad. The Lord says it's bad. Samuel says it's bad, but the Israelites want a king. So at some point, this is just a good reminder that at some point, like God is going to tell you what to do. A lot of times we know what to do inherently or because of a specific thing that God has told us to do. And yet we have the choice to do it or to not because the Israelites knew. The Israelites knew what they were getting themselves into but they chose the king anyway because the nations around them want to have a king. I mean, they the nations around them do have a king. So they want to have a king just to be like all the other nations. Knowing it's not what God wants, they just said, no, we want a king. And I feel like we do that all the time. I mean, at least I've done it before where I know that what I want to do is not what God would probably want me to do. I know it's a bad idea, but I have done it anyway, you know? So we do that all the time. It's not really a thing that's specific to the Israelites here. It's, it's just a good reminder to not tire of doing good and not tire of doing what God says to do, because it's going to work out better that way than if you try to do it on your own. Um, so, but he said like, this could work. Essentially, he said it could work with this King. This is not the best option. It could work with this King. However, you have to follow all my commandments. You have to keep the Lord's covenant, all of this stuff, or else it will be very bad. So in 1 Samuel 11, Nahash, who was an Ammonite, besieged Jabesh Gilead, which is the, um, 
city that took the Ark. Uh, Jabesh Gilead wanted a treaty, like a peace treaty, so they didn't all get just killed when the Ammonites took over. The treaty was that they needed to gouge out every right eye. Everyone needed to gouge out their right eye. But they negotiated and said, okay, let's wait seven days. We agree. If no one comes to rescue us in seven days, that'll be the treaty. So we don't die. We'll cut up our, um, we'll cut out our right eye. So to send a message, they did a similar thing with the concubine story. They killed an ox, cut it up, and sent it through Israel as uh, a message to come rescue them. So everyone was scared and came together. They then came and fought. They sent word that they were going to come rescue um, this city. They did. They slaughtered the Ammonites, um, and then they renewed the kingship before the Lord. So Samuel was, I mean, sorry, Saul was essentially now the official king in front of the Lord, um, and they renewed that. So Samuel gives a farewell speech in 1 Samuel 12, which at first I thought meant that he was dying, and I just thought they worded it differently. But no, it's literally a farewell speech because he's the leader he was the leader and now the leader officially is Saul because he's now the king. So Samuel talks to all of them and says, who have I wronged? Who like, what wrong thing did I do as the leader? Basically saying like, why are you getting rid of me? I've been very good and you shouldn't be trying to get a king right now. Um, but they say, no, you haven't wronged us. We just want a king. So he said, I'm going to confront you with the evidence of all the righteous acts by the Lord. This is where it said God will still make it basically okay with a king, but if they rebel, his hand will be against them. So there's high stakes. They need to be following the Lord in order to make this king thing work. Um, he then calls for thunder and rain and says that this is how you will realize the evil of calling for a king. So there was big thunder, big rain. Um, essentially says like, if there's thunder and rain right now, you know that it's uh, evil to have this king. It's not a good idea. Then there was thunder and rain, but the Israelites still want a king. So the Lord said, you know what? I can make it work, but it's not the smartest. Okay, 1 Samuel 13, when Saul was 30, he, had re- he then reigned for 42 years. He started his reign when he was 30, and he went for another 42 years. So Saul took 3,000 men to attack a Philistine, Philistine outpost. Um, he waited there for seven days for Samuel and um, offered a burnt offering. Samuel came and said, what have you done? You have sinned and your kingdom will not endure. Because basically the plan was to wait there for seven days and then talk about it. But Samuel just rushed and was second guessing the whole plan and um instead of waiting for Saul or instead of waiting for Samuel he just tried to essentially bargain with God and give him a burnt offering so he would do better in a battle against the Philistines then as a kind of side note it was talking about how there's no blacksmith in Israel and so they had to go to the Philistines to get their weapons sharpened and so at this specific day the Hebrews had no sharp weapons they had no weapons at all um, so, okay. Then in Samuel 14, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Hey, come to this Philistine outpost. 
Saul was on the outskirts with 600 men and no one knew that Jonathan had even left. So, so Jonathan is Saul's son. Um, he said, Hey, let's go sneak to this outpost. No one even knows that we have left. There was a cliff on each side of the pass that Jonathan was trying to pass. And Jonathan inquired of the Lord if he was going to give them the outpost. God said yes. And so Jonathan and his servant killed the roughly 20 men that were sitting at that outpost. Then since, you know, God had promised that he would give uh, the Philistines into, uh, into their hands, the earth started shaking and there was panic sent by God um, in the Philistines. Saul assembled all of his men and he had said, cursed be anyone who tastes food before evening. Well, Jonathan was away at the outpost and didn't hear that. So once they rejoined uh, with the army, he found honey in the woods and started eating the honey. Um, and, you know, the the army soldiers started saying, hey, we, you know, your dad made an oath and made us take an oath that said we wouldn't eat. Um, so, so then it says that all the days of Saul were, they were at bitter war with the Philistines. That's kind of a side note at the end of first Samuel 14 here is that, um, every, everything that Saul did was like basically a bitter war with the Philistines. Okay. In first Samuel 15, Samuel tells Saul to attack the Amalekites uh, in revenge for what they did to Israel. They were supposed to destroy everything, like every single thing, but they went in, destroyed everything except for the choice things, like the best things. They didn't kill the fattest calves. They didn't destroy the best harvest or anything. They kept the best for themselves. They didn't destroy everything. Um, Saul, uh, Saul then set up a monument in his own honor, which, so a little narcissism there. And this is where they say obedient, the quote, obedience is better than sacrifice. Samuel calls Saul out for not obeying. And he said, I did obey. I I destroyed everything except for these. And I'm going to sacrifice these best, these best goats and calves and stuff as a burnt offering to God. And he said, Hey, obedience is better than a sacrifice. Nan used to say this all the time. She would say obedience is better than sacrifice. That means like, even if you think you have this plan to like, Hey, well, I know God told me to destroy everything, but I'm actually going to save some of it and, and offer it as a sacrifice to him. Well, no, he didn't say that. He said, destroy everything. They didn't fully obey. This is just the driving home the importance of full obedience to God. Because I think we try to hold on like, we, God says to cut out a sin in our life and we cut out most of it, but we keep part of it, you know, and we say, well, I obeyed. Well, you didn't obey completely. So that's just a a good reminder about how important obedience to God is. So the Lord then rejects Saul as a king because of this sin. Samuel then kills the king of the Amalekites in revenge and puts him to death. And it said the Lord regretted making Saul the king. So one of those instances where it says God regrets it because it's just gone so badly. That doesn't mean if he had done it again, that he wouldn't choose Saul. It just means that it grieves his heart that Saul is disobeying him to this extent. 
we talked about that regret phase a few times in other Bible episodes. So um, it was very confusing at first if you're confused, but it basically, yeah, it just means it grieves the heart of the Lord. It doesn't mean that he was caught off guard by the fact that Saul was necessarily a bad king. Okay, we're in the home stretch here. We have about four more chapters left. In 1 Samuel 16, it said, How long the Lord talks to Samuel and says, How long will you mourn over Saul? Choose a different king. God is going to choose a different king. He said that it's going to be one of Jesse from Bethlehem's sons. Again, it's from Bethlehem. So a man, Jesse, is in Bethlehem. It's going to be one of his sons. And I just feel like there's, I might need to look up some Bible commentary for next week about Bethlehem because, um, like every important lineage is coming from Bethlehem and I feel like it's just a mirror of Jesus. So, um, Samuel brought a sacrifice to Bethlehem and he went and on the altar, it's kind of a thing where, you know, if you're trying to figure out who sinned against someone, it's uh, the same thing they describe where they cast lots and say, okay, well, it's in the tribe of, uh, Benjamin. It's in the clan of this. So, um, essentially they, they found Jesse of Bethlehem and it was none of the oldest sons that they had presented. He said, it's going to be one of your sons, but it's not any of these, these ones. And he said, well, there is one more out in the field. And, um, it ended up being him, whose name was David. This is going to be King David and also David and Goliath, which is coming up in the next chapter. The Lord left Saul and was with David from then on. And it said that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him, which is very confusing because how can there be an evil spirit from the Lord? But I think it's just, he's being used to fulfill the fact that David is going to be king. And so um, every time he knew that David played this instrument and every time that David played it, it would help him feel better. So, uh, Saul sent for David and made him play this instrument every time this uh, spirit came over him. Um, and okay. So then we're in first Samuel 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. I'll go over this pretty quick. Basically Goliath was a very big man. The Philistines and the Israelites would be lining up for battle every day. And this man said, hey, let's just do a one-on-one fight. Whoever wins will take the other ones as servants. Um, So he called for this one-on-one fight. David said, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He was confident not in himself because he was the youngest. He was the smallest. He was the weakest. And he said, who who is this guy basically? Like, does he know who he's fighting against? He's fighting against the living God. So, uh, David's father said, told him to go check on his brothers who were all in the army. They were all going to fight in this war. And he told him to go check on his brothers, bring back a report on how they were doing and to leave, uh, the, basically the warriors supplies. So David comes in and is saying, you know, more about who is this guy? Who is this guy? Even his own brothers were talking crap against him. They're like, who do you think you are? Like, you shouldn't even be here, basically. So he didn't have a lot of people on his side. But he went to Saul and said, again, who is this? I've fought off lion and sheep in this field. I'm small, but I've killed lion. I mean, I've killed off lion and bears to protect the sheep. Um, I've, I've killed him with my own hands. You know, I can take this guy. So Saul agreed that he would go fight. He said, may the Lord be with you. 
uh, here's my armor. The armor was huge. David was not used to it, so he just took it all off. All he brought into this fight with him was five smooth stones from the river and his slingshot. Um, Goliath was making fun of him, but as most of us know, he just flung the smooth rock, sunk into Goliath's forehead, and Goliath fell over and died. And then David cut off his head and delivered it to Saul. So Saul's all elated, but in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 18, Saul basically doesn't let David go home. David gets a very high military rank because he keeps having success in these battles. Um, But then when everyone celebrates, they say, oh, Saul killed thousands of men and David killed his tens of thousands of men. And Saul gets jealous and, and because he doesn't like that he's accredited with only like a tenth of the men that David killed. And so this evil spirit comes over him again and Saul tries to kill David multiple times. There's then two chances for him to be son-in-law to Saul. He wants David, Saul wants David to marry two of his daughters. The first time he rejects it. The second time he says, well, I'm too poor. The price for the marriage, instead of like, a, you know, because a dowry was, was the thing to do where you had to pay the dad a certain amount to marry the daughter. The price for the dowry for this uh, woman was 200 uh, Philistine foreskins, which is quite an interesting uh, price. But he was able to get that very quickly, and so he was able to marry uh, Saul's daughter, and he became Saul's son-in-law. But Saul became very afraid of David and how much power he was gaining and how good he was at fighting. He said, what else does he have to gain besides the kingdom? So Saul told his son Jonathan to kill David, but Jonathan had made a a covenant with David and they were like the best of friends. It said Jonathan loved David as himself. And so Jonathan tipped off David to this plan, told him to hide and talked his dad out of wanting to kill him. But then after the next battle, same thing happened. Saul got very jealous. And so he tried to kill David again by piercing him with a spear when he was playing the, the instrument to cool him down with the evil spirit. But then, um, uh, David's wife, who is, you know, Saul's daughter, told David to flee and disguised an idol as him so people wouldn't get thrown off until it was too late. Um, David went to Samuel and told him everything about Saul. And while he was telling him about Saul, they started prophesying, like the spirit of the Lord came on them. They all started prophesying. When Saul sent men to go capture David, they started prophesying because it was so strong. The spirit of God came on them too. And he sent more men and they started prophesying too. And eventually Saul went himself and he also fell into the spirit of the Lord. And even he started prophesying. So that's where we leave off on, on this, uh, week, first Samuel 19. So a lot happened in that section. There was a lot of great stories, including David and Goliath, which is a great one, but I didn't really realize all the drama that happened after David and Goliath. I didn't realize that Saul was jealous of David and was kind of on a power trip about not wanting David to become too powerful. So um, all of that was very interesting. I hope you guys enjoyed that synopsis. Let's see what we're reading next week here. Um, So if you're following along, next week we are reading 1 Samuel 20 to 2 Samuel 15. Should be a good one. I think all the the things in Samuel are going to be very, very not only interesting, but very informative and kind of convicting, like the one about 
clearing out all your sin and not saying that, oh, I'm obedient when you're not obedient in the full way that you know that God wants. Um, so I think there's a lot of great reminders here and great stories um, and very important history that I think that we should know. Because I think a lot of times the Old Testament gets written off as not as relevant, but I think it is. I think it's, if anything, more relevant because we need to know the history of where the faith came from, all the prophecies that got fulfilled so we know that Jesus is who he says he is. And the journey that the Israelites have taken shows how powerful and good and merciful, but also how just and kind of rational God is. I think seeing all sides of and all facets of that personality, if you will, of God is very important in our lives. So anyway, that is all for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I will see you Monday for a great episode. We're going to be going over the second amendment, why I think it's important, what the gun stats are, uh, including defensive uses of a firearm, which is barely talked about. Um, and so it's going to be a great episode. So I will see you all on Monday. Talk to you later. Bye.